Over 2,000 years ago, that child was born that, of course, changed the course of history. Jesus Christ, born into the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about the reality that here we are in the year 2021. Where did that number come from? 2021, well, here we are counting up, and every year it goes up, and we're next year is 2022. Well, what is the year Zero. Well, though the, the math was off by just a few years when this calendar was first created and began to be widely recognized, but the intent was for year zero to be the year that Jesus Christ was born. So we have this system of B.C. and A.D. B.C. is before Christ, A.D. is Latin Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord. Of course, modern scholarship is attempting to erase that by using the letters B.C.E. and C.E., meaning before the common era and now we are in the common era. But I am just as happy to take those letters and say, oh, this is before Christ's era and now we are in Christ's era. But that shift of seeking to get away from the reality that this is before Christ and in the year of our Lord... The attempt to distance ourselves from that terminology in a popular culture reminds me of Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which states, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers to take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But it's ironic because even though the the secular world tries to get away from the terminology of, oh yes, B.C. and A.D. and the year of our Lord, even though they try to distance themselves from that, the reality is we still have this calendar system. It is still the year 2021, and no matter what anyone may say, that takes us back to the day that Christ was born when Christ came into the world, and thus, Jesus Christ is Lord, even over time. Well, as we conclude our mini-series on the nature of who Christ is, we are once again begin to be taking the words from the angels to the shepherds from Luke chapter 2 as our launching point. Luke chapter 2, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The last two weeks we have looked at Jesus as Savior and then as Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and today we see Him as Lord. So as we consider that, what does it mean for someone to be Lord? What does that mean? Well, at base level, the idea of Lord is pretty straightforward. In fact, if you were to look up the word Lord in an English dictionary and then look up the word Lord in the Greek lexicon from, uh, from the original language, you would find similar definitions. The concept of Lord, it can pertain to ownership. One is a Lord of, over something by virtue of being the owner. That could be physical property, like a house, you're Lord over your home. Biblical times, this was true of a master-slave relationship. You had the, the slaves, they, their owner was their Lord. 
pertain to the concept of having authority by virtue of holding a position. In biblical times, it was common to refer to individuals who were in positions of authority and power as Lord such and such. So, government officials, teachers, religious leaders, patriarchs of the family, all often were referred to as Lord. It was a term of respect and of admiration. But in the angel's declaration about the arrival of Jesus Christ, the grammar of the sentence, for unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the grammar of that sentence makes it clear that it is not just a generic Lord who was born. This was not just some any run-of-the-mill person who may be eventually into a position of authority or power. No, there was something different about this individual. They identified him as the Christ. For unto you is born this day a Savior. Who is that Savior? He is the Christ. He is the Lord. They identified him as the Lord. So again, as we've seen from previous weeks, we have seen that He is the Savior. We have seen what it means that He is the Christ. And today we're going to take into consideration what does it mean that Jesus is Lord. And to do that, we're going to take us to the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. We're going to go th- move through Psalm 110. So let's turn there this morning. Psalm 110 is considered one of the great messianic psalms. It is a psalm of David, and we actually know nothing about the background of why David wrote this psalm or what the circumstances were surrounding it, the occasion for writing, or any of the other details. We don't have that information. But this psalm gets quoted a few times in the New Testament, and and significant theological weight is placed upon the significance of what is communicated in this psalm. And Jesus says that when David penned these words, he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This psalm is very clearly about the Messiah, about the coming one, the anointed one, the Christ. It is prophetic and it minces no words. The language of this psalm is not the kind of language that we often use when we talk about the nature of who our God is. But we have these words in front of us. They are true words, a true description and a prediction of who Christ is and what He will do. The psalm breaks down essentially into two sections, although I do have three headings which we will examine in order this morning. The first is that the Lord is ruler. The Lord is ruler. Psalm 110, beginning with verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now in this verse alone, we have, we have incredible truth about who our Lord is. Incredible things that are revealed just in this one verse alone. First, we see the divinity of the Messiah, the divinity of the Christ, in that the Lord, that's Yahweh. In fact, if you notice in your Bible, we have capital L-O-R-D, Lord, and then the second reference to Lord is Lord with a lowercase O-R-D. 
The difference for that, the reason for those different uh, spellings of the word Lord, it's, it's the same spelling but different capitalization, is that the first Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the covenant name of the Lord. It is Yahweh, and it is transliterated into our text so that we know that this is not just any other Lord. This is Yahweh being spoken of. It is brought into our English translations with the all capital letters. The second Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is translated as Lord. It still references someone who is in that position of authority. Well, here we have Yahweh, and in this context, it is God of the Father saying to my Lord, David is referring to another individual as his Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we have here the Father speaking to the Son, calling Him Lord. This text is quoted a few times in the New Testament, and again, I mentioned that each time with significant theological weight. The first of those times is Matthew chapter 22, verses 24, or 42 through 46, where Jesus is almost seeming to present a, a theological riddle to the religious leaders, these, these ones that are supposed to be so knowledgeable and so great and have so much understanding of the Old Testament, Jesus speaks to them. This is Matthew 22, beginning with verse 42. Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, he's the son of David. He said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Jesus presents what is almost a, a theological riddle to these individuals that were supposed to have the most theological knowledge, and they they couldn't understand, but what Jesus was getting at was that this, this one, this Messiah, yes, He's the Christ, yes, He's the Son of David, that is, that is true, we find that information revealed in the Old Testament, but there were hints, even here in Psalm 110, that that Messiah, that Christ, would be more than just a physical descendant of David. There's more going on here than a mere physical descendant. David calls him Lord. David, the king of Israel. Many would argue that he was the greatest king Israel ever had. And he calls someone else Lord. There's a clue latent in this text about the divine nature of the Christ. Now some might say, okay, sure, he's, he's more than just a mere man, but He's not really fully and truly God, right? In fact, if you run into Jehovah's Witness or you would talk with them and they would say that, no, Jesus Christ, yeah, he was, he was just a very high angel. He, he was not actually God. He was a very high angel. But that's where the book of Hebrews is so helpful in this as it also quotes this text. We have in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, and it demonstrates that the Messiah is much more superior than an angel. Hebrews 1 verse 13 says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
And so what Jesus and the author of the Hebrews is helping us to see is that even within this Old Testament text, we have these clues that the Christ would be more than a mere man. Christ would be more than an angel. That this Messiah, this anointed one, this one is Lord. He is divine. And God has given him rulership over all things. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. Of course, uh, being seated as a, speaks of a position of authority on one hand because he's, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father as a privileged position, but it also speaks of An accomplishment has been completed. It implies a a finished work. Hebrews again speaks of Christ as having passed through the heavens and seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. And Peter speaks of God exalting Christ to His right hand in Acts chapter 5 verse 30. This is a privileged position of authority, of power, and of rulership. And He is to remain in that position until I make your enemies your footstool as the text says. There's going to be a day when all of creation will bow before our Lord and recognize Him as King. Of course, that text that we read this morning from Philippians chapter 2 bears witness to that as well. That God has exalted Jesus Christ. That the name of Jesus one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But back in Psalm 110, notice also verses 2 and 3 as the psalmist continues on. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. We see that the Lord carries a mighty scepter. Scepter, of course, is another symbol of kingship and rulership. The one that kings would wield the scepter and use it to render verdicts about various matters. The one who holds the scepter holds the power. And that is given to the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. This calls to mind the prophecy that that Jacob gave to his sons concerning the tribe of Judah. This is Genesis chapter 49 verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The Lord wields the scepter, and he will rule. The word for rule is interesting. It it has the idea of Ruling, just like what you might expect, but, but it has more ideas even within it than that. It can mean to subdue or to, to trample, even to have dominion or to dominate. One commentator put it this way, quote, The word used for rule has a certain sternness which suits the contrast between the enforced obedience of enemies in this verse and the glad response of volunteers in the next. So yes, Jesus will will conquer His enemies and they will bow before Him and they will serve Him. But not everyone is is subject to conquering. 
we have in verse 3, that the people, your people, will, will offer themselves freely. Offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. It calls to mind to me the passage from Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Those who are people of the Lord, those who are His children, we offer ourselves willingly, freely up to the Lord, recognizing that He is exactly that. He is the Lord. He is the one who is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our obedience and worthy of our servitude. The text says that we will be clothed in holiness, in holy garments. Of course, we know from the New Testament that this, this, this holiness, this righteousness is not our own, but it is that which is given to us from Jesus Christ. And so we come before Him dressed in His righteousness. The last phrase in verse 3 is interesting where it says, on the, uh, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Honestly, it's a, it's a difficult Hebrew phrase, but it seems to be an idiom of sorts that carries the idea that, that Christ will never grow old. His reign will never lose its vitality. As soon as the day dawns on His kingdom, the dew will remain in perpetuity. You know, it's been said, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, this, this saying about the British Empire, that the sun never sets on the British Empire. Right, that was, that's something that uh, was spoken of with pride about the British Empire, a phrase uttered about during in the high points of the British Empire. It speaks of the vastness, that because the, the domination of the British Empire, their, their naval capabilities, their ports, their trade routes, their, their colonies that were spread all throughout the whole world, the sun never sets on the British Empire. History, however, has shown us that all great empires of the world have eventually come to an end. The Babylonian Empire, Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Romans, even, even the British Empire is not what it once was, if you can even call it an empire today. But when the Lord reigns in His kingdom, there will be no end to that reign. When a thousand years have passed, when ten thousand years have passed, the dew will still be on the grass. There will be no end. So what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It means that He reigns. It means that He rules. He is King he is ruler. But we also see that he is also priest. Look with me at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we spent time talking about the concept that the Messiah would be a priest last week. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that today. But just, just to continue to get us in the context of this passage... If you recall, the only Levites could serve in the lineage, specifically Levites in the lineage of Aaron, could serve as priests 
unto the Lord. Jesus was not born from the tribe of Levi. And that would present a difficulty for us if it were not for the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. In fact, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 14. When the only other information in the Old Testament we have about Melchizedek is here in Genesis 14. We have this account. This is after Abraham had rescued Lot. There was uh, five kings warring against five kings, and they had come together, and they had clashed, and they had done battle, and Lot was kind of caught in the middle of all of that. Abraham went in and rescued Lot and all of his family out in the midst of all that. And after that, after we have this recorded for us in Genesis chapter 14. After his return from the defeat of Ch- uh, Chedorlaomer, <laughs> tongue-tied in saying that word, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom sent, went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. There are so many interesting details in that text, but there's a few that we could hone in on. First, Melchizedek was king of Salem. And Salem was eventually renamed Jerusalem. He was king of Jerusalem, priest to the Most High God in God's holy city. And remember, this is before the giving of the law. This is before Moses. This is before Mount Sinai. This is before the Ten Commandments, before all those things. And yet, here we have a priest of God Most High. But not just a priest, also a king. The king of Salem. Some believe that Melchizedek was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. I don't think there's enough information in the text to lead us to a dogmatic conclusion about that. But it is after this pattern that Christ holds his priesthood. There were no other royal priests in all of the Old Testament. There were no other kings who also held the priesthood. There was Melchizedek, and then there was Jesus. That is it. The only two examples in all of Scripture where the offices of priest and king are fulfilled by one individual. Notice the text says that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He says, you are a priest forever. Israel had their issues with their earthly priests. Even Aaron, the first high priest, who who was the brother of Moses, who beheld some of the glories of the Lord and all the wonders that God had done. Even he rebelled against the Lord and built that, that golden calf. Years later, we have other priests who have forsaken the one true God. We have Eli and his sons who were disobedient to the Lord and acted wickedly. And even righteous priests who sought the Lord, who obeyed His word, who pursued obedience to the law, even they grew old and died. But it is not so with God's Messiah. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever. 
after the order of Melchizedek. Christ holds the eternal priesthood and thus is able to offer an eternal salvation. So he is ruler, he is king, he is Lord, and he is also priest. And finally, we see that the Lord is warrior. The Lord is ruler, the Lord is priest, the Lord is warrior. Verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute a judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a picture of our warrior Lord going forth into battle. The text says, the Lord is at your right hand. So again, this is, this is David speaking to God. He says, the Lord, this is the one that, that is sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. He, he, he will sit at his right hand until he makes all enemies his footstool. Well, down here in verse 5, the Lord, that is the one who is at the right hand of Yahweh. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Again, the privileged location of the Christ and also shows us the unity of the Father and the Son in this text. Some people try to paint a picture of almost split personalities within the Godhead. Yes, God the Father, He is this this vengeful, wrathful God, and and He is the the hard one. And then we have Jesus Christ, who is meek and mild, and He is gentle, and he He is soft, and all these things, and they present them in contrast to one another. But here they are presented as working in concert with one another. It is the Son who rides forth into battle. It is the Son who is at the right hand of God. They are going forth together. And it is the Messiah who brings forth His wrath. And none are able to stand before Him. It says He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. This is a picture of complete and utter destruction. All that will be left are the destroyed bodies of those who persisted in rebellion against this Lord. We are given a fuller picture of this battle in the book of Revelation, and I'm going to read an extended portion of this. This is Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a bit of a gruesome picture. The countryside filled with corpses, birds dining on the flesh of their carcasses. It's a picture of full and utter annihilation of the enemies of Lord God Almighty. Our Lord is a warrior. Finally, we see verse 7 that says, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. After the destruction of the enemy, he will be refreshed. He's drinking from the brook by the way, and he will be exalted. He lifts up his head. He is exalted. This is our warrior, Lord. Passages like like this, I think, are difficult for us to wrestle with sometimes. I mean, this doesn't exactly sound like the Jesus we think about in our Jesus storybook Bibles, right? Like, that's that's not the image presented. We think of Jesus being tender and and soft and compassionate. And we come to passages like this, we don't always know what to do with them. Could it be that we have an incomplete picture of who our Lord is? We want to think of our God as a God of love, and and He is a God of love, and we should recognize Him for that and praise Him that He is a God of love. We think of Him as one who offers forgiveness, and praise God, He does offer forgiveness. All the aspects that we think about Christ that we typically associate with Him, the gentleness, the compassion, the mercy, all those things are good and right and true and praise God for them. But we must also recognize that He is also a warrior. He is also a judge. He is also a king. And if we fail to come before Him, offering ourselves willingly, then there will be judgment that comes upon us. It is good and right that He carry out these actions because those who are being destroyed are those who persist in wicked rebellion against Almighty God. And so justice is being done. This reality can be terrifying, and in many ways it it should be, especially for for the unbeliever. But for us, it should also be comforting. 
it should be comforting to know that our God is a warrior. He is a warrior king. He is a fighter. He protects his own. He fights for his own. Now think of the greatness of who our God is, His might, His power. And it, it calls to mind Romans chapter 8, where we see this, these marvelous words beginning in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Himself up for us all, how He will not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is Lord. He's a fighter who protects His own. He works justice, true justice. In a world full of injustice, when we look around and we see that our government is corrupt, we see our judicial system is corrupt, we see our military and police forces, that there is corruption within them, our schools, our education centers, they are corrupt, and we lament and we weep at the sin and the pain and the abuse and the hurt, and we cry out, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make right these things that ought not to be. Bring your justice. And because our Lord is warrior, He will make all things new. He will cleanse the earth. He is ruler. He is priest. He is warrior. A well-known pastor tweeted out just this morning, I happened to see, he said these words, a day is coming when it's not presents that will be opened, but books. Those books will be opened, and our Lord will judge because He is Lord, and we are accountable to Him. But because He is, as the angels declared to the shepherds, because He is both Savior and Christ and Lord, we don't have to stand before Him in fear of destruction, but come before Him in full assurance and confidence, rejoicing to see His face because we trust in Him. Ultimately, this is the message of Christmas. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior who is Christ, who is Lord. 
And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have confidence in the Lordship of Christ. He is the Lord. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you that we can look forward to that day with anticipation and with rejoicing, knowing that we will not have to stand in fear, but we can stand in knowing that our God saves, that He is the Savior that He is the Messiah, the one who was promised to come. I pray that you help us to live under the Lordship of Christ. I pray that you would help us to be submissive and obedient to our Lord. He is our Lord. He is our Master. We are His servants. We are His slaves. But as we do seek to live out lives of obedience, may we do so with rejoicing and may we do so out of hearts of of gratitude and not out of hearts fearing, not out of hearts seeking to earn validation or, or favor, but out of hearts of gratitude for what you have done for us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your justice. Thank you that our Lord is ruler that he is our priest, and that he is our warrior. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.